everyone, my name is Pip and you're listening to Murder with the Court. Each week I talk about different high-profile criminal cases, and this week I'm covering the case of Mario Batali, a celebrity chef who is accused of sexual assault. This is a multi-part series and this is episode 4, so you might be a little lost if you jump in now, but I'll recap the case quickly, but I would recommend that you go back and check out the other episodes if you have a chance. So to briefly summarize the case, Mario Batali is a world-famous chef, and in 2017, he was in his late 50s. One night, he was at a restaurant called Town, and that's within Massachusetts, and the restaurant itself is called Town, T-O-W-N-E. And at the same night, a young woman called Natalie Teeny, who was 28 at the time, came to the restaurant with her friend Jonathan. They're having a good time, eating, drinking, and at one point, Natalie notices, hey, that's Mario Batali over there. She knew him from TV and whatnot, and he's been on a few shows, but she also recognized him because a restaurant was opening up nearby called Italy, and Mario owned Italy, and his face was all over the merchandise. So, Natalie thought to herself, why don't I try and get a sneaky little picture? She puts her phone over her shoulder, tries to take a picture. She's not as sneaky as she thought because... Mario catches her, Jonathan tells her, busted, better go over there. So she goes over, ready to delete the photo. Mario says, hey, why don't we take some selfies together? Natalie says, sure. They take the selfies, and it's while they're taking the selfies that Natalie claims that Mario sexually assaulted her. She says that he was groping her, groping her breasts, on her behind, on her thighs, even grabbing her vagina. But in the photo, she says you can't see it because one of his hands is on her face, but the other one is is doing things underneath. So Natalie doesn't come forward about this right away. She says that she tells her best friend, Rachel Buckley, about what happened a few days after in person. Then in December 2017, and just to rewind a little bit, the night in question where the alleged assault occurred was April, April 1st. So in December, an article comes out in a food blog called Eater, and in the article, four women are accusing Mario of sexual assault. And so Natalie reads the article, and her testimony is that she reads it, and she realizes, hey, I'm not alone. This has happened to other people, and this wasn't just a one-off, one-time incident. I have to say something. I have to speak up. So she says that she decides to go forward with her story. She contacts a reporter who publishes it. She gets overwhelmed by all the media attention. And so she decides to hire a lawyer because she doesn't know what else to do. She's never never done something like this before, and she needs help sorting through her options. Of course, the defense will argue something very different. They'll argue that Natalie was actually opportunistic, and that when she saw that article, she thought, hey, here's a chance for me to cash in on the Me Too movement and accuse this famous chef. So you'll have to decide for yourself after hearing all the evidence in this trial what, what you think actually happened. So Natalie ended up coming forward and she filed a civil suit against Mario as well as launching the criminal complaint. And the criminal complaint is why Mario Batali was tried in May of 2022 in front of a court. And interestingly, he opted at the very last minute to go for a judge-only trial. So one judge would be deciding his fate instead of the traditional um, jurors. And that's unusual for a serious crime. Usually defendants will opt for the jury. So in the first few episodes of this series, I've gone over all the evidence and just to be super brief about it, the state had two witnesses. They had Natalie Teeny, who was the victim, and they had Rachel Buckley, who is her best friend, who she said she she told about the event. And the defense didn't actually put on any witnesses. They introduced a few documents, but they had already been brought into evidence. But the defense's main arguments came from their vigorous cross-examination of both Natalie and Rachel. So I covered those cross-examinations, direct examinations in depth in the previous episodes. So if you're interested in that, go check those out. In this episode, I'm going to be covering the prosecution's closing argument. In the previous episode, I talked about the defenses. And that's because in Massachusetts, the defense actually goes first in criminal cases, which I didn't know until now. Um, But the defense does not get a rebuttal argument. In states where the prosecution goes first, you have prosecution defense, and then usually the prosecution gets a rebuttal, but the defense doesn't get a rebuttal here. So I talked about the defense argument, the defense closing argument, kind of summarizing the main arguments the defense lawyer made and just the overall strengths of their case. 
So today I'm going to go over the prosecution's argument and hopefully I'll get to the verdict and my thoughts on the case, but we'll see how it goes. In this case, the defense and the prosecution paint very different pictures of the victim or alleged victim, Natalie Teeny. The defense paints Natalie Teeny as a manipulative, dishonest, opportunistic liar. The defense argues that Miss Teeny will lie whenever it suits her, whenever it benefits her. She'll lie to get out of jury duty. She'll lie for fun. She'll lie to get out of a $200 gym membership. She'll lie under oath. She'll lie about sexual assault to get some money. In their closing, the defense said, Natalie Teeny lied to get out of a $200 gym membership, which she did. And she concocted this elaborate lie involving fabricating legal documents and leases. If she did all this for $200, what do you think she would do for $50,000, which is the amount of her civil lawsuit? And the defense argues, the only reason she's bringing this criminal charge is because she thinks it'll help her in her civil suit. So that's the defense's overall narrative. Now, the prosecution, like I said, has a very different narrative. Unlike in the defense's argument where Natalie Teeny is painted as this cunning and manipulative and conniving woman, the state, on the other hand, paints her as this naive woman who has taken advantage of a more powerful man. In other words, the state is really using the stereotypical Me Too argument. And, if you, if you don't know, Me Too originated when women started speaking out against powerful men, uh, most notably Harvey Weinstein, who was involved in the movie industry, who used their connections, their wealth, their influence to get away with sexually abusing women. So the state is trying to go with this argument. They're trying to say, hey, look at this power differential. We have Natalie Teeny, a 20-something-year-old woman, and now we have, on the other side, we have Mario Batali, this famous chef. He's older. He's rich. And just look at this power differential. And Natalie Teeny, she didn't say anything until she saw that there were other women too. And the reason she's speaking up, it's not about money for her. It's about telling her story. So they're painting her very differently than, than the defense. And it goes beyond just pointing out this power differential. Throughout their closing argument, the state brings up again and again the fact that Miss Teeny didn't know what to do. That's one of the central narratives in their closing argument, I would say. The state says things in their closing argument like, what was Miss Teeny supposed to do? She didn't know how to react when you're sexually assaulted by a celebrity. Does anyone, any of us know how to react when you're sexually assaulted by a celebrity? She was just standing there. She just didn't know what to do. She had never done this before. The state paints her as this naive, helpless victim who is just overwhelmed by everything. And so she hires a lawyer to help her figure things out. And she continues taking the photos with Mr. Batali and smiles in them because she just doesn't know what to do. And the state also puts forward their characterization of the defense's argument. And they say, the defense is trying to tell you how a victim should act. That a victim after an assault should be afraid and they should avoid the place where they were assaulted. And the victim should be serious and the victim should get upset and all these things. But there's no way a victim should act. Miss Teeny, she might not have acted like you expect a typical victim. Miss Teeny uses humor as a coping mechanism. When she was assaulted, she was smiling in the photos because she didn't know what else to do. She joked about it with her friends. She went back to the places where she was assaulted because she didn't want to stop living her life. And it's not fair to judge her because all victims react differently. Now, the state didn't say that specifically, but that is the gist of their argument, and, and that's how I kind of saw it. And I think this is a good argument, but the problem is that it's not really true. It conflicts with a lot of evidence. So like I said, the state's narrative is that Natalie Teeny is this victim. She's helpless. She's taken advantage of. She didn't know what to do and she's a pure soul, she's coming forward, and yeah, she might not act like the regular victim, she might not act how we expect her to, but she showed up, and everyone has skeletons in their closets, nobody's perfect, there is no perfect victim. That's something the state says in their closing, and I thought that was a really powerful line, and it's true. The state says, 
Miss Teeny, she turned over her phone. She turned over two years worth of text messages and Facebook posts and whatnot. And if any of us had our lives ripped apart the way Miss Teeny did, there'd be skeleton in, skeletons in our closet too. And the state, one of, one of their strongest arguments, in my opinion, or something that I found really powerful was at the very end, they said, you know, Miss Teeny, she's not perfect. She came here knowing that all this was gonna be unearthed. And it's true, there's a lot of negative things that were brought to light through the text messages. And she knew that, she, she would have known what was gonna show up in court. And the state says, but she showed up anyways. She showed up here to tell her story. And so I thought that was a, that was a good argument. So I've given you the state's argument and I presented it in the most favorable way possible. And now I'm gonna kind of go through and nitpick the areas where I think it kind of falls apart. And I don't fault the state at all for their argument. I think honestly, the state was in a really tough position in this case because their witness was not credible and that's not their fault. But Natalie Teeny, for whatever reason, she was caught in many, many, many lies on the stand. And as the judge in this case said, this case is all about credibility. This case hinged on photos, on 10 photos, and the photos don't really tell us much, on 10 photos and on Natalie Teeny's testimony. Also Rachel Buckley's testimony, but Rachel Buckley's testimony is basically just what Natalie told her. So it's all about Natalie Teeny. And Mario, who's the defendant, he didn't testify. So it's all about Natalie Teeny's credibility. And if she can't be believed, how can the state make their case? So I think the state did the best they could with the evidence they had, but in forming this kind of narrative, they had to skip over a lot of things or kind of brush off some things and massage the truth a little bit. And so I'm gonna kind of go through some of the issues I saw with their argument, even though I thought they did a they did a good job. I was, before they went up, I was thinking, what is the state gonna say? The defense had a really great closing statement and the lawyer, very, very talented, but he did have a lot to work with. Prosecution, I don't think she had as much to work with. Okay, let's start going through some of the issues I saw with the state's argument. So. As I said before, one of the state's big points was pointing out the fact that there's no perfect victim, there's no right way for a victim to act. And I completely agree. This argument, to me, 10 out of 10, it's like I'm sold on it. But the problem is that, there's two problems. One problem is that the way Miss Teeny acted isn't just mm, a little bit off, a little bit suspicious, it's wildly inappropriate. Some of the things she did just, it defies, com when I say it defies common sense, it's hard to imagine a victim ever acting like that, right? So it, it's so far beyond what our expectations are that they're maybe pushing it too far. And to give you kind of an example of that, for example, uh, Miss Teeny texts her friends a lot saying, LOL, give me 10K. You know, I'm not gonna send, I'm not gonna release the pictures unless you give me 10K. I'm gonna sell those pictures. She says stuff like that all the time. And there's many text messages where she says that to her friends. And the prosecutor's way of explaining away all these texts is saying, it's all just a joke. It's kind of a strange joke to make, to be fair. The biggest problem though, in my opinion, with this argument from the state, and the argument is that we shouldn't scrutinize Miss Teeny's actions too heavily because all victims act differently. So the issue I have with this is that Miss Teeny's actions, they're not just unreasonable if we compare them to what we would expect from a typical victim. They're unreasonable when we compare them to her own words. That's the main, that's the main problem in my opinion. She said things, she said that she would never go to Italy. She, it disgusted her to see Mario Batali's face in, in that restaurant. Her and her friends boycotted the restaurant. They would never go back. It disgusted them. She said that, and she said she'd never gone back, but it later came out that when, at the time she said that, and that was a sworn statement made to the police, she had gone back to Italy. She, she'd gone back, and Italy again is the restaurant that Mario Batali owns, and his face is everywhere. And not only had she gone back to Italy, she'd gone back to town, which is the restaurant where she was allegedly assaulted, three times. And what's more, the defense really emphasizes the fact that on one of these three occasions, Natalie Teeny had just found out that day 
that her article about her assault was going to be published. And, and if you don't remember, she had contacted a reporter about sharing her story. So in their closing, the defense lawyer says, on the day that a reporter is going to publish your story of assault, you decide to go to the place where you were assaulted. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So the defense really hammers this point home. And to me, I don't find that particularly compelling because, you know, maybe she she was she wasn't triggered by being there. That's totally reasonable. And on the stand when she's questioned, she says, "Well, it's not the place that's triggering, it's the person." And I think that's okay, but the problem is she said in her deposition, "I'll never go there." It it triggers me. I'm disgusted by the thought of going there. So she makes these really strong statements in her deposition, and now she's completely walking it back. And she keeps trying to walk it back, even when the defense lawyer keeps catching her in lies. For example, when Natalie's being cross-examined to try and explain why she would go back to one of these, to a restaurant where she was assaulted, she says, well, I probably didn't want to go there. I was probably dragged there by somebody who didn't know about the assault because we'd assume that somebody who knew about the assault wouldn't be as so insensitive as to drag her back to the place where she was assaulted. But then the defense lawyer says, well, actually, you went with your friend, I believe it was Philip, who you did tell about the assault. And she goes, oh, well, um, you know, eh, I mean, it, was, it wasn't really like I didn't want to go there. It's just like I could take it or leave it. Like I was just kind of, mm, I can go either way. So now she's walked it back even more. Now she's saying, well, I was just, you know, indifferent. And then the defense lawyer says, you were actually telling other people to go to this restaurant. You're trying to get your friends to come. So it, it went beyond this neutral stance. You were actively endorsing the restaurant. So that's just one example where one of her lies kind of unravels on the stand. So that's one major issue I saw with the prosecution's closing statement, that they kept talking about this whole story about there's no right way for a victim to act, but they never addressed the fact that Miss Teeny wasn't just an imperfect victim, she was a lying victim. And I think it might have been quite different if instead Miss Teeny during the depositions had said, no, I actually, I did go back to the to Eater and you know, I'm okay going back to those places. It doesn't traumatize me too much. If she'd kind of owned that fact, maybe this would have turned out differently. But I think the fact that she was playing that up during her depositions really shot this entire argument. The the right way for a victim to act argument, because it's not that she's not acting like the perfect victim, it's that she's not acting like she herself said she would act. So uh, that's that argument. The next thing I wanna talk about is, generally I think the prosecution did not bite the bullet on enough. So let me explain that. I wanna talk a little bit, and this will be relevant, trust me, the trial of Theodore Edgecombe. So this was a trial that happened, I believe in 2021, maybe 2020, and it involved a man who, there was a road rage accident. We don't really know what happens, happened exactly, but a man was on a bicycle, there was a car, and it seems like they collided, and the man on the bike got up, maybe said something to the guy in the car. He says the guy in the car um, used a racial slur towards him. And so the man who was on the bike punched the guy in the car, punched him in the face, and then started biking away. The guy in the car chases him in his car, runs out of the car, like parks it and keeps running. The guy on the bike is trying to get away. And then the guy in the bike, when the, the guy, the other guy who's chasing him catches up, he shoots, shoots the guy and he says it's in self-defense. Now, the defense lawyer for, and the guy who's on trial is the one who is the biker. Now, not only did the biker kind of start this by punching the, the deceased in the face, he also fled the scene. He, I think he evaded police for, I want to say maybe over six months. And so that, so there's a lot of things that do not look good. So one, he punched the guy in the face and two, he fled the scene. So what the defense lawyer did for in in um, in the defense lawyer they're defending again the guy on the bike what they did in their opening and I thought this was really effective they started off by owning these facts they said my client is not perfect he did some things that he shouldn't have and he took responsibility for those it was wrong to punch 
um, X, Y, Z. He shouldn't have done that. It was wrong to flee. He messed up. He messed up and he accepts responsibility. But, and then goes into the rest of their argument. But what, that doesn't mean that they don't have a right to self-defense, blah, blah, blah. So I think that's a really effective way of framing a defendant or a victim who might otherwise come across as unsavory. There seems to be consensus among lawyers that if your client has skeletons in their closet, which you know most of us do, if you're going to put them up on the stand during direct examination, and that's when it's your turn to talk to your client, you should bring up all these skeletons. And the reason why is because if you don't, you better believe they're gonna get brought up by the other side during cross-examination. And don't you want the chance to control the narrative? And I think this kind of philosophy also, this kind of philosophy also applies to situations involving scandals, maybe political scandals, cheating scandals. I think I've, you've probably heard people say, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to say it first. I wanted to come out with it first because if you come out with the truth first, You've probably heard of, you know, celebrities or even people who have cheated on their spouses or whatnot. If they know that they're about to get caught in something, they'll often say, you know, I want to come out and come out with the truth first. Because if you're going to get caught either way, you might as well come say come come out with the truth yourself and then at least that way you'll come across as being honest, right? So and, and also then you can control the narrative. You can control the way that you tell the story. Whereas on cross-examination or if somebody else tells your story, it's probably not gonna be told in a very favorable light. And so to bring this back to the trial that we're talking about of Mario Batali, there were a lot of skeletons in Natalie Tini's closet. And the prosecutor did not bring them up at all on direct examination. And that's probably part of why she got wrecked on cross-examination because there was all these things that weren't addressed during her direct examination. For example, there was the whole juror scandal and that was the fact that Natalie served as a juror. She lied and said that she was clairvoyant and then she did not follow the judge's instructions. She told other people about the trial and she even texted somebody saying, we're not supposed to talk about this, but LOL, I don't care about following the rules. She said something like that. So that was that was pretty bad. But no, the uh, the prosecutor prosecutor didn't bring that up. They also didn't bring up the fact that um, Natalie got out of a two hundred dollar gym membership by forging a fake lease document. The prosecutor also didn't bring up all the texts where Natalie says things like "LOL, give me ten k" or "I want to get money." So not only did the prosecution not bring these things up on Natalie's direct examination, they also didn't address any of these problems that were brought up on cross-examination in their own closing and also in the defense's closing. So the prosecution in their closing, there was a lot of things that the defense said that were very damning that the prosecution just did not touch. And I just don't think that would fly with uh, a jury or but certainly not with a judge. A judge would definitely notice if you're just not mentioning things. Um, for example, the prosecutor never brought up the whole juror misconduct that I was talking about, lying under oath, which is a serious issue. The prosecutor never brought up the fact that Natalie said something completely different in her deposition than what she said on the stand in regards to Italy. You know how she said I would never go in there, but then on the stand, it was exposed that she in fact did go there. The prosecutor just said, well, we don't know how victims should act, but didn't address the fact that Natalie lied about that. The prosecutor also didn't address the fact that Natalie was shown to have lied about um, never having worked with a lawyer before. When Natalie was interviewed by the police, she told them she'd never had a lawyer. She said this was all new to her, but it was shown on cross-examination that not only had Natalie worked with a lawyer before, she'd actually sued a restaurant before. So this whole act of acting naive and not understanding this process did not hold up under scrutiny. Another lie that was told to the police was Natalie said she had not filed a claim against the police, but 
she had at that time. So these were all pretty significant lies because they relate exactly directly to the case. She's lying about things about the case to make herself look presumably like some, make herself look like somebody she's not, like somebody who doesn't understand what's going on. And that plays right into the defense's argument that this is financially motivated because if it wasn't, why would she lie about all these things? So the prosecution's strategy for dealing with all these problems in Natalie's testimony is essentially just to skip over them. And to come full circle with where we started off when I said, I think Natalie and the prosecutor should have just bit the bullet, I think that the prosecution should have brought these things up and admitted to them and said, yeah, maybe my client, she acted poorly in this trial. She was not a good juror. She did not follow her civic duty. It was bad. It was bad and she feels bad about it and it was immature. But instead the prosecutor just like didn't talk about it, instead tried to shift the conversation to something else. They, the prosecutor confined their discussion of Natalie's experience as a juror to only talking about the fact that on the jury questionnaire, Natalie did not check a box that said, I've been a victim of uh, a crime before. And so, you know, the defense earlier had said, well, clearly Natalie wasn't assaulted or she would have checked this box. And Natalie's argument was, well, I didn't check it because at the time that I checked that, that I was doing that questionnaire, I hadn't reported my crime to the police. And so the prosecutor just focuses on that. They says, you know, Natalie, she explained this, it makes sense. So the prosecutor decides to only address part of the defense's argument about the whole jury thing. Like just, just talks about the, the, the box that says I've been a victim of a crime, but completely forgets about the part where Natalie pretends to be clairvoyant and tells people about the trial and lies under oath. Only addresses the part where there is a kind of an, an answer or an excuse. And so I don't think that looked very good because it's, it's pretty transparent what happened. And by not addressing something, you're essentially conceding that point. Somewhere else where I think the prosecutor and Natalie maybe should have bit the bullet. And I'm not 100% sure about this. this. This could have backfired, but if it was up to me, I would have bit the bullet. So one of the major themes of this trial was Natalie's financial motives. Again and again, the defense were saying, Natalie's out for money, she's doing this for money. And to be fair, there was a fair amount of evidence that supported this argument. There were all the texts where Natalie said, give me 10K. There was the fact that she only came out with this after other women had come forward. There was the fact that she'd lied in court before. She'd lied to get out of a $200 gym membership. There was lots and lots of things. And also the fact that she, of course, filed the civil complaint and then also lied to the police in ways that might make her civil complaint more likely to succeed. Now, the prosecution's argument was that the reason Natalie came forward was because this happened to her. She did not come forward for money. She came forward because this happened. And the prosecutor says, if Natalie was doing this for money, why wouldn't she have just filed the claim the day after this happened? She could have just filed it right away. Why not do that? And since the prosecution went last, the defense wasn't able to rebut this point. But to me, this was easily rebuttable because the obvious answer would be that the reason Natalie didn't come forward right away was because she didn't think she would win a case, but once she saw that other women had come forward, it made it more likely that if she brought a claim, the claim would also succeed because it's happened to other women. She was trying to, I'm not saying that's what happened, but that would be the obvious answer to, to that argument. So the prosecutor was trying to make it seem obvious, like, well, if she was doing it for money, I mean, it's not a good argument <laughs> because the defense argument that she saw an opportunity and she took it is just as consistent with her actions. So part of the prosecution's strategy in arguing that Natalie was not in this for money was trying to paint her as very innocent, very naive, and, and naive in particular about the criminal, criminal process. The prosecutor and, and Natalie said she did not know how to, she did not know she could file a police complaint. She didn't know the difference between a civil and a criminal trial, no, despite the fact that she had actually served as a juror in a criminal trial. And so some of these claims, they were just, they're silly. That's, it's not believable that she didn't know the difference between a criminal and civil trial. And some of the claims were false. She said she'd never had a lawyer before. Well, she had had a lawyer before. I suspect Natalie was thinking that she shouldn't own up to having a lawyer and 
having all this experience because if she did, it would make it look like she's just out for money. If she said she had experience, she'd done this before, she'd sued people before, people wouldn't believe her story. And while I understand this tactic and strategy, the problem is that she took it so far to the point where it became pretty obvious that she was lying about it. What I think would have been more effective is if she had said, yeah, maybe part of my motive is financial. Because there's nothing wrong with that. And I think the prosecution in their closing said she filed a civil suit. It's completely legal. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's true. But in their arguments, Natalie and the prosecution, they didn't just say, no, you know, it's mostly about coming forward and telling the story. They say it has nothing to do with money. At one point, Natalie says, it's not about the money. 10K is an arbitrary number. I'm not doing this for the money. And the defense lawyer asked her, okay, well, if it's not about the money, why are you suing for, for money in, in the civil trial? And Natalie says, well, I just thought that's how these things go, which is, ob which is not a good answer. It's, it's not believable. And how I would have answered if it was me and I'd been sexually assaulted, I would have said, well, I'm coming forward for two reasons. One is because I do want justice and I do want to tell my story, like Natalie said, but I also want to be compensated for the harm I suffered. And that's completely reasonable. It's completely reasonable. You know, she could, e could even have said, before I saw the article, I thought that if I did come forward, people would not believe me. And it happened, but I just didn't think people would believe me. And that gave me the bravery. And yeah, I did want to be compensated and I deserve that compensation for the harm I suffered. That would have been much more believable. Maybe, maybe Natalie thinks that the jury or the judge in this case would not react well to that. In general, there is this stereotype about women being gold diggers, but it seems like Natalie was so, was trying so hard to avoid fitting that stereotype that she just went completely in the opposite direction, pretending like she was so naive, she knew nothing, and it was just not believable. And so I, sometimes when you kind of admit to your faults, it makes people trust you a bit more. So instead of trying to be perfect, it's sometimes better to, you know, admit to some vulnerabilities, some faults. Although I wouldn't say wanting to have money is a fault. I think that'd be completely fair. But like I said, with the Theodore Edgecombe trial, the, the biker guy, at the beginning, he admitted, I did this, it was wrong. And I think it could have gone a long way if Natalie had said, you know what? I was very immature when I acted like this in the jury trial. I shouldn't have done that. And you know what? Scamming the bank, also not my finest move. And you know what? I would like to be compensated for the harm I suffered. But despite all that, I was sexually assaulted. And just because I'm immature in a jury trial, or I was immature back in 2018, does not mean that this isn't real, because this is real. I, I would have found that more compelling. And also, instead of saying, oh, well, I would never go back to the restaurant, I would, I would never, she could have said, you know what? I did go back because I was trying to move on. And... I, I didn't want to stop living my life. I think that would have been fair. I think though, one reason why Natalie probably didn't want to say that and say, well, you know, I wanted to keep living my life, blah, 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 is because in a civil lawsuit, and this is something I kind of want to talk about that I think is interesting. In a civil lawsuit, the amount of compensation you get if you win is determined, well, it does depend on what the claim is, but a large portion of the claim will depend on the amount of harm you suffer. And if the harm is largely a kind of emotional harm or something that's hard to measure like relationships or loss of a future career or actually no let's stick more to the to the emotional harm and, or mental health issues it's, it's very subjective right like if you're suing because somebody totaled your car well you can estimate the value of the car pretty easily and you can get back that value of the car but if somebody says i was emotionally harmed by somebody posting my naked photo online well, how do you measure that harm? It will vary from person to person. Some people it might not like it might not affect them at all. Maybe they suffer no harm. Other people it could devastate them. Everybody has different psychologies, people react differently, and the amount somebody's compensated depends on how they react to whatever has been done to them. And you know, I think that itself is an interesting concept because in some ways it might not make sense, right? Like if the same thing happens to two people, why should one person get compensated more? I mean, it's because one person suffered more. But on the other hand, you could argue that 
why should one person be responsible for how somebody else reacts to something? Now, to explain this, let me, I'll just take a brief little tangent and talk about a case called Mustafa versus Culligan. It's a Canadian case, and to sum it up, Mustafa was a man, and he liked to drink his bottled water. He was very, I want to say germaphobic. He was, he cared a lot about hygiene and, and whatnot. Anyways, one day he's drinking his water, and there is a dead fly in it. And this traumatized him. It really wrecked him. It, he already had a fragile mental psyche, and this he just went downhill from there. So he sued, and he was awarded a lot of money because the damages he suffered, his emotional damage, was high. But the water company who he sued, they appealed the de decision, and they said, hey, we shouldn't have to pay all this money just because he reacted like this to something that like a normal person would kind of brush off. You know, his reaction was abnormal and we should not have to pay for that. It, it's not fair. And the water company won. So, I mean, that's just Canadian law, but that that's kind of one principle. And, and it depends on the case. Um, there, I know of an insurance case that's also Canadian where a man, he was driving his car and snow from like an overpass that was above the car fell onto the car and the man was not hurt. Nothing happened, he just pulled over onto the side of the road and he won hundreds of thousands of dollars because apparently that caused him mental distress and there was no physical harm, but he showed that mental distress. So it's an interesting argument, it's an interesting discussion rather, whether people should be compensated for the, for the harm they suffer because harm is so subjective and it can vary so wildly. That said, getting back to the case, the reason why Natalie Tini might have wanted to have played up all the harm she suffered might be because she knew that if she just said, well, I was sexually assaulted, but I wanted to get back to living my life, and actually I went back to the restaurants and it was okay, then she might have not won any money in the civil suit. So maybe she was sexually assaulted, but she thought, well, I need to make it seem really bad or I'm not going to get compensated any money. And if you think about it like that, it seems it, it does seem a bit unfair that imagine if imagine she has been sexually assaulted and she you know is able to go back to the restaurant and stuff because she wants to keep living her life, and then she sues and imagine the court finds okay well, you were assaulted but you know your life doesn't seem harmed you're still going out you are going back to the place so you don't get any compensation, and that would seem a bit unfair almost like she's being punished for continuing on with her life, so. Although I would say overall the evidence in this case probably leads me to think that Natalie is fabricating to some extent, there's, in my mind, there's still the chance that she was sexually assaulted. And I think if she was, this is how that would have happened. She would have been sexually assaulted and it would have not been that big of a deal because after it happened, she was joking about it with her friends and she did go back to those restaurants. But just because she acted that way doesn't mean it didn't happen. The defense lawyer argued that, but I don't believe that. It might have still happened. And the reason why she didn't come forward right, right away was because, yeah, maybe she figured there, it's just not worth it. I'm not gonna, nobody will believe me. I won't win money. And then maybe when the other women came forward, maybe part of it was about telling her story. And maybe part of it was, well, I was sexually assaulted. And so why not be compensated? And I'll be more likely to actually win than earlier on if she'd thought about going forward. She thought, well, there's no chance that I would win this case. But after the article was published, she thought, hmm, maybe people will believe me. And you know what? I deserve to be compensated if I was harmed. And then she starts kind of spinning all these lies to make it seem like worse than it is and pretending like she's naive. She's never done this before because she doesn't want people to think she's a gold digger. But at the end of the day, she was assaulted. I could believe that. I could believe that. And the main reason why I could believe that is because Mario Batali has done this to so many other women. And he was very drunk that night. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's believable. But at the end of the day, nobody knows what happened. Except for, except for those two, right? Natalie and Mario Batali. So if I was ruling on this case, I would go not guilty because I'm not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Mario Batali did sexually assault her. But... I wouldn't say I'm convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that he didn't assault her. And obviously that's not what's on trial here. 
But I do think a lot of people probably reacting to this case are thinking it's so clear she's lying. And while I think it's clear that she lied about certain things, I don't think it's clear that she lied about the sexual assault. And the main reason why I think it's conceivable is because he's done this before. And of course, that's actually not, you're not allowed to use that reasoning and coming to your decision. You're not allowed to say, well, just because he did it before, he did it again. But at the end of the day, people's past behavior is a strong predictor of their future behavior. So if you may, if if you just had to ask me like what my guess is, I w- a lot of my guess would be based on the fact that he had done this before. If Mario had never done this before and the case was all the same and she'd lied and blah, 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 then I I think I would say this is completely not true. But given his behavior, and also they do have this power differential. You know, the prosecutor brought it up and I think she overemphasized it. She tried to push Me Too too far. You know, Mario wasn't Natalie's boss. There were women who were sexually assaulted by Mario who worked for him. But Natalie was just a random woman in the bar that night. And she was younger, but, you know, Mario, it's, he's kind of famous, but he's not, he's not the president, you know, and Natalie could have left. And so the prosecutor tried to make it seem like Natalie's naive, she doesn't know anything, but, you know, the defense lawyer pointed out, Natalie, she was 28 or 29 when this happened, college educated, she's been in a, she's been a juror, she's not this unsophisticated person, she's sued people before, and I'll say she came across quite articulate on the stand, despite saying some things that were questionable and probably untrue, the way she spoke, she came across as somebody who was intelligent. So I think the prosecution could have maybe just downplayed the whole power differential. They could have still brought it up because it is true there was a power differential. Natalie was 28 and Mario was, I want to say, 57. He was famous. She wasn't. He was drunk. She did not. She apparently was not drunk, but it it wasn't the level. It didn't rise to the level of having a 13-year-old girl and Jeffrey Epstein, right? So I think sometimes they... Overall, the prosecution, Natalie Tini, they just tried to go too far with a lot of their arguments. They pushed it to the point, past a point of believability. They pushed it to the point where it wasn't believable anymore. In the closing argument, the prosecution tries to kind of address some of these issues by saying, maybe we don't like how Natalie jokes or copes with the sexual assault. Maybe we even think that the way she talks about it is distasteful or immature. So, you know, it seems like the prosecution's kind of trying to make a concession, but the problem, in my opinion, is that it just doesn't go far enough because no reasonable person will think that all the texts about the money and blah, 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 it's all just a joke. I think the prosecution should have bit the bullet a little bit more and said, yeah, Natalie has lied about some things. She wants money. And that's okay. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, right? There's one other argument that the prosecution made that I quickly want to address. The prosecution, in their closing, they say, they, they kind of just assert some things as fact, and that doesn't really work. They say, Natalie Tini, her texts are consistent. They all talk about sexual assault. And I'm thinking, hmm, did I, did I miss all the texts where she talked about sexual assault? Because I'm pretty sure she did not use the word sexual assault in any of them. I think the only, the text about the sexual assault, it was just her talking about the 10K for the photos or about the photos or laughing at Mr. Batali and his Crocs and his orange scarf. So I don't know, maybe the prosecution thought if she could just say that in the closing, people would think that's true, but I don't think that was true. And another thing that the prosecutor just kind of asserts as truth is saying, and the photos, they show her being assaulted. That's the proof, we've proved it, the photos show it. And they really, they don't, they really don't. I mean, the defense goes the other way and says, these photos show it didn't happen because it's impossible with the space between them. And you know, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle between those two extremes, because in the photos, we can't see any sexual assault. Miss Teeny is arguing that everything, all the assault is happening below the camera. It's his hands that are not in the camera. So even she's saying that. So the photos don't rule out the possibility of sexual assault, but they also don't show that it definitely happened. At best, I would say they're ambiguous. They do show, what they do show, is that Natalie Tini met Mario Batali, but I don't think that's what's on trial. And they also probably show that Mario Batali is drunk, but 
that's not a crime. And while it is a aggravating factor, it's more likely he was behaving badly if he was drunk. That, that alone isn't enough to convict him of sexual assault. In case I've been a bit negative here when talking about the prosecution's arguments, and again, I, I don't think the prosecutor had a lot to work with because Mistini was really not a credible witness. But that said, um, there's one argument, well, more than one, but one argument I want to talk about that the prosecutor made that I thought was, was good and it w- was something I hadn't thought about before. So the prosecutor says, think about this. The detectives looked through over two years of texts and messages that Miss Teeny had. They found all these texts that said all these bad things. And they did. You know, there's texts where she's calling, she's calling, using slurs to refer to people of certain ethnic backgrounds. She's joking about the money. There's, it's not good. She's talking about how she doesn't care about breaking her oath as a juror. There's bad stuff. And so the prosecutor says, Don't you think, I mean, look at all the dirt they found on her. Don't you think that if there was some text where it said, this is a scam, I'm making this up, they would have found it, right? And don't you think if she was scamming, she, at at one point in these two years, she would have, you know, that would have, she would have said that in text. And so I thought, hmm, that is a good argument because yeah, it does seem like this girl texts a lot, talks to her friends a lot. Um, She doesn't seem to exercise that much discretion in how she talks over text. And so, yeah. I think maybe it would have cut, maybe that maybe that's a good point. I don't think it's a slam dunk because it's definitely possible that she came up with this plan and told no one. She came up with the plan and talked to somebody in person about it. She talked with them on the phone. You know, there's lots of possibilities, but I thought it was a good argument. The only problem is that this is not enough for the prosecution. This argument is basically saying there's no evidence that this is a hoax. And that might be true, but it's not the defense's job to prove that this is a hoax. The defense doesn't have to prove anything. The prosecution has to prove that this happened, right? They can't just say, well, there's no proof it's a lie, so I guess it's true. That, that, that doesn't fly. They have to prove it actually happened. The defense does not need to prove that it's a hoax. So just by itself, that one argument is not enough, but you know, I thought it was a good argument and worth mentioning. Finally, the moment we've all been waiting for. You might actually already know the verdict. You probably do, but if you haven't, I'll tell you now. The verdict was not guilty. And that probably doesn't surprise you, doesn't surprise me, but this was a judge-only trial. So in some ways, Mario Batali was taking a big risk here. His entire fate rested on one person. And while I think most people would find him not guilty, when it when your whole fate comes down to one person, it's uh, you never know what's going to happen. So although I was thinking not guilty, I don't think anybody could know for sure that that would be the outcome. So I think I'll just read off the judge's verdict, maybe kind of quickly, and I think the judge or I'll summarize it. So the judge starts says the case is about credibility, and says the complaining witness has credibility issues. Uh, The judge mentions her conduct as a juror, says that her conduct was egregious and offensive to the rule of law. Her testimony about the scheme to avoid the gym membership uh, was indicative of a lack of credibility. And these two issues were significant and they support the defendant's argument that the victim's motive was financial gain. And then the judge goes to some of the fact issues in the case as he puts them. And he says, pictures tell a thousand words. And he says, you know, the complaining witness in these photos, so Natalie Tini, um, he talks about how there's the separation between her and Mario Batali, the tile floor. And then he also talks about how she's smiling. And he talks about the three minute delay and how that seems to indicate that during that time, Miss Tini was looking through the photos and deciding whether or not to take more. And the judge says, All of this, this happened, this all allegedly happened as a serious sexual assault was happening. So he's kind of adopting the defense's argument that this just doesn't make sense. This is not how a victim of sexual assault would act. They wouldn't look through the selfies and decide to take more. They would walk away, you know, and also just the fact that the pictures show the separation between the two people that 
that doesn't line up with a sexual assault. It doesn't make sense. The judge then says that the burden is on the Commonwealth to prove uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is true. And he says, here, I haven't been convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, and so not guilty. So I won't spend too long talking about the verdict. Uh, I just wanted to kind of point out a few things. I thought it was kind of interesting what the judge decided to emphasize. What the judge emphasized is what... Are not, is not what was most convincing to me. And I guess different things are convincing to different people. But in terms of the photos, the factual issues, I didn't really find those to be that important because to me, the photos were ambiguous. They could support either either story, either Mario's story or uh, Natalie's story. The space between him and her, well, it wasn't in every photo. So I don't think that says too much. And the fact that she was smiling, to me, that was irrelevant. We don't know what she was thinking. The three-minute delay, that was significant. I did think that was significant. And as for the credibility, I totally agreed with the judge about her conduct as a juror. That was pretty bad. And also the scheme of the gym membership, that was bad too. I am surprised though that there's some things the judge did not mention in their decision. In particular, I was surprised that the judge didn't talk about all the texts that seemed to show that Natalie might have a financial motive. In particular, I'm thinking about the text where she was saying, I'm going to sell the photos for 10K. And I'm also thinking about the evidence where she lied to the cops and said, I've never had a lawyer before. I haven't filed a a civil suit yet. I'm also surprised that the judge didn't mention anything about how she said in her deposition that she would never go back to Italy, yet she did go back to Italy. To me, in terms of what is consistent with how we'd expect a victim to act, the whole Italy business was more persuasive than her smiling in the photos. And again, to me, it was really the fact that she said she would never go back and she said she boycotted it, but she did. So it wasn't just the fact that I can't imagine a victim would ever go back. I They could, but she specifically said she never would. So to me, that was a bit more persuasive than the photo evidence that the judge referenced. But I don't know if the judge's decision that they read out really encapsulates their whole decision making process. I'm sure it doesn't. And it would be interesting to to know if they're going to put out a longer decision or anything about this case. And one last thing that the judge did not note in their decision was they didn't talk about how the victim was caught lying on the stand. To me, that was actually, I don't know if I want to say that was the most important, but that was pretty important. And especially how she doubled down on a lot of her lies, like how she said, she doubled down on the clairvoyancy excuse. Instead of admitting, yeah, I was taking my jury duties as a joke, she said, no, I actually am clairvoyant, despite the fact that there were texts where she's saying, I'm going to use the clairvoyant excuse. The fact that she was just lying about that on the stand, to me, that that alone demolished her credibility. Right there, she lost the case for me. So that sums up my reaction to the judge's verdict. There's just a few more points about this case in general that I wanted to mention. So one is that is Mar- I want to talk about Mario's decision to have the judge alone trial. And I'm just speculating here, but I wonder if he perhaps thought that the public would really dislike him, that the public would be really unfavorable towards him because of the whole Me Too movement. And if that's the case, I think that's interesting because I think it's actually the opposite. I think there's been a big pushback to Me Too, kind of a a counter wave. And if anything, people are quite quick to label women as lying or being out for financial gain. So, well, I'm not sure if this is why he went for the judge alone trial, but I could imagine that possibly he thought, well, given how culture and society is nowadays, people will just be eager to crucify me. But I actually think that these days people are quite eager to crucify women as liars. And in this case where the woman, she definitely was lying. I don't know if she was lying about the sexual assault, but she lied about things on the stand. I think the public would have been all too willing to have found, to have said she was lying and found him not guilty. So I wonder about that. And one thing I just wanted to mention is that in, in Canada, in civil trials, particularly uh, in insurance law, defendants tend to want to go with a jury over a judge. And I thought that was interesting. So imagine a, a slip and fall case where somebody falls and then they sue the store owner. And so the store owner is 
being tried and they decide to go for a jury trial. And I thought that was interesting because I thought, well, wouldn't you think the jury would be really sympathetic to the victim, the person who fell? So if you're the store owner, wouldn't you want the judge? Because wouldn't you think, oh, well, the jury, they're just going to give all this money to the person who fell and they're not going to, you know, so it's not, if you're the store owner, you, you don't want, you don't want to have the person deciding the trial being very sympathetic to the victim, right? But it's actually the opposite. Uh, a defendant, like the store owner in that case, will generally want to go with the jury because juries are actually harsher than judges are. The judges are more likely to award money to to the victim or the person who fell than juries are. Juries can be pretty harsh, especially if they think someone's lying. They don't like that. They don't like being misled. And I think kind of a similar sentiment could apply to this case. I think if juries do think somebody is lying and being dishonest on the stand, that alone is enough to lose the case. And one other thing, the last thing that I want to mention is the fact that Mario did not testify. And I think this was probably smart because if he had testified, what would have happened was the Crown would have been able to bring in character evidence against him. And I suspect there would have been a lot of damning evidence. You pr they probably would have had women who he had assaulted, testifying against him, just people talking about his, his bad character. And that would have reflected pretty poorly. So I think that was probably a wise decision. I think the strongest argument that the prosecution has is something that couldn't be talked about. And that's the fact that Mr. Batali has done this before. So of course the judge knows that because the article that talked about the sexual assaults was brought up in the trial. And I mean, the judge might just know from pop culture, right, that Mario Batali has done this. So everybody knows that, but that could not be argued. It couldn't be talked about. The prosecution wasn't able to just bring up women and start talking about how terrible he was and how he'd assaulted them because his character wasn't on trial. He hadn't testified. And so he hadn't brought that as an issue that could be talked about. And in addition, in their arguments, the prosecution isn't allowed to say, well, he probably did it because we know he's done this before. They, you can't make that argument. You can't say because they've done that before, they probably did it again. I'm not sure exactly what rule of evidence that is. I'll have to look that up again, but I know you, you can't use that as an argument. And it's funny because sometimes the arguments that are most persuasive, I would think, to a lay person are the arguments that are not allowed, right? Like, I, I think that argument, it, I mean, that's it. actually, it's not that interesting because that's exactly why they're not allowed, right? If, if the lawyers could argue that, then there might be a lot of jurors who would end up being swayed in, in an unfair way, right? And convicting somebody based on their past crimes. And that wouldn't be fair. Although it's kind of interesting because on one hand, technically what you did in the past doesn't affect what you do in the future, but there's a very strong correlation, right? Past behavior is predictive of future behavior. So if we just wanted to say how like, like assess the likelihood of somebody having committed a crime, it actually makes sense to look at their past behavior. But the reason why we don't in criminal trials is because we don't think it's fair. We don't think it's fair to judge somebody's innocence and convict them on the basis of their past behavior. Even if we might be more likely to be right if we actually did look at their past behavior. So that's just kind of an interesting, kind of more philosophical question, I would say. So that's it for the Mario Batali trial. If you've stuck through all the episodes with me, thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. And please, you know, let me know if there's any cases you're interested in hearing. I'm probably going to do the Michael Barrisone case soon. I've watched the whole trial. I have the notes. I just have to put the episodes together. Also the Curtis Reeves trial. That was the popcorn shooter one. Oh, and the Michael Barrisone, it's the uh, equestrian trial. And so those are actually both murder cases. And it's kind of funny because this podcast is called Murder with the Court. And I realized that my first two uh, series have, neither of them have been murders. Actually, no, scratch that, sorry. Michael Barrison is attempted murder. Um, this one, this is sexual assault, but Anthony Tote was definitely murdered, that's for sure. So yeah, thank you for listening and let me know if there's any cases you're interested in hearing and hopefully I'll talk to you next week.